By the end of the show, I will have given you my best betting picks for the NBA playoffs, plus a three-word review of every team in the NFC. Booker probing, might want to double-team him. Booker's going to shoot over two, why not? Holy smokes! Good morning, good afternoon, and good evening, everybody. Welcome back into episode number 15 of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. If you are new to the channel, this is a sports and sports betting podcast that I host where we talk about everything that's going on in both of those worlds, latest headlines, breaking trends, analysis, everything that you need to get you through the sporting calendar. Now, today's show, we're going to be talking about the NBA playoffs. No surprise. Everybody knows that's my favorite sport and my favorite sport to talk about, and also the NFL. We're going to go ahead and preview what it's looking like this season for every team in the NFC. But the first thing we are going to start with is the NBA. And the first game that we are going to start with is the Phoenix Suns versus the Denver Nuggets. Now the Suns won game four, 129 to 124, to even the series up at two games apiece. Now before this series started, I thought it was going to be Suns and seven. After watching the first two games, I said, you know what? I'm convinced that this is going to be a Nuggets sweep, maybe a gentleman's sweep, but it's not getting past five. And obviously that is now mathematically impossible. We're going six minimum if, you know, either team can win both the next ones and we'll go six. But if if they split, then we're going seven. Now, I do still have a lot of faith in the Nuggets. I'll be honest, because from what I've seen from the Suns, is it they're just totally relying upon Devin Booker and Kevin Durant. And to those guys' credit, let we have to start the show with this. Devin Booker is playing out of his goddamn mind. He scored 36 points on 14 of 18 shooting in the last game and is now shooting at 79% from the field in his last two games. He also had 12 assists last game. Guy is just utterly sensational. He's unstoppable. And I'm not joking when I say this. It might sound like hyperbole, hyperbole, because we don't look at Devin Booker as a consensus top 10 player in the NBA. Do we want to run through the list real quick? Let's go. We got Steph, Luka, Giannis, Embiid, Jokic, uh, Durant. Um, who else we got up there? I went too fast. I, I messed myself up. Let's slow it down. Okay. We got Steph, Luka, Giannis, Jokic, Embiid, Tatum, Ja. Then we get into the conversations about, did I say Durant? So Durant is eight. We get into the conversations about maybe LeBron. I know some people are out on him. But, I mean, if anyone's averaging 30 points in a regular season, I feel like they still kind of got to be up there. Then we got, obviously, Dame Lillard. We got people from that sort of ilk. Shea Gilgis-Alexander is making a case that he belongs up there. So we've got a lot of talent up at the top. Devin Booker isn't, isn't universally recognized as being in that top 10. But what he's done in this playoffs is nothing short of sensational. He's scoring 38 points a game with shooting splits of 62% from the field, 51% from three, and 87% from the free throw line. He's also giving you seven assists and five rebounds per night. The guy's playing out of his mind, and I'm not joking. Let me back get back to my original point. It is not hyperbole to say that Devin Booker is on one of the greatest playoff runs that we have ever seen. Now, if it ends in the second round, it will come to be for nothing. It will be not forgotten, but it won't be historic. But if he makes the NBA Finals, he doesn't even have to win in my book. If he makes the NBA Finals doing what he is doing right now, there's going to have to be serious consideration about if this is the greatest individual playoffs that we've ever seen. I mean, this is a guard, not a, not a Magic Johnson guard who's six foot nine. He's six five. 
six six maybe I, I would say six five scoring 38 on 60 percent from the field and it's just getting better too he looks better and better as the playoffs go on this was supposed this was the knock on the suns they were supposed to be getting tired because they were so heavily reliant on booker and durant that's not what's happening booker is just getting better and better and he's playing the best defense of his entire career too now you can get on him and say that it's your eighth season and people still look at you as a young player. It's about time. Nobody saw this coming. Nobody's, nobody thought Kid Devin Booker was going to be the best player in the playoffs, much less the best player on his team. That was supposed to be Kevin Durant. When Matt Ishbia brought Kevin Durant to the Suns, it was supposed to be to be the driving force on the championship winning team. Now, speaking of Matt Ishbia, he got himself into a little altercation with Jokic during the game. Jokic, by the way. 53 points and 11 assists. That's the most points scored in a regulation loss in playoff history, and it's the most combined points and assists, so points responsible for by a center in NBA playoff history. The um, Ishbia had the ball, loose ball, squirted it over in his direction. Jokic goes over to retrieve the ball. I don't think Ishbia actually had it. Some other fan did. But Ishbia starts getting a little handsy with Jokic, and Jokic pushes him off of him. Now, if you look at the letter of the law, if a player enters the stands and makes contact with it with a with a fan, then it's an automatic suspension for the next game. So, does Jokic deserve to be suspended? I don't think so. First of all, this wasn't an ordinary fan. This was an owner, and I'm not saying that that changes the letter of the law, but I think it changes Ishbia's perception of the power that he had in the situation. It was inappropriate for Matt Ishbia. And as the team owner, you should know that better than anybody. But I also understand that he is more prone to making that mistake than probably anybody in the arena. Ishbia initiated the contact. I don't have a problem with Jokic getting him off of him. Ishbia sold the flop. He looks like Chris Paul out there on the court. More power to him. I mean, he got his team a technical free throw. The Suns go on to win that game. So maybe it worked, whatever. But I think this is a nothing burger that we just got to leave in the past. And I don't really want to talk about it too much. What I do want to talk about, is the rest of the players. Jamal Murray didn't show him any love, by the way, 28 points. But other than that, nobody on the Nuggets scored more than 11 points. Michael Porter Jr. had a chance to be the one player who did that. But with two minutes left, the Suns are down. The Suns are up five. They were up 11. The Nuggets come storming back, finally. They'd had the door slammed in their face all fourth quarter long. They finally have a chance to come back. And Michael Porter Jr. is in a three-on-two, and he pulls up for a weird running transition three-pointer. Now, I know he's a great three-point shooter. I know he loves to pull up and transition. But there's something that a lot of players, I think, just don't recognize right now, which is when you have a run going and you're in dire moments or dire, you're down dire straights, which down five, two minutes left, you are. I mean, it's a two-possession game. With how easily the Suns are scoring, you know that if you don't score, you're probably going to be down three possessions because they're probably going to go the other way and get at least two, maybe even three points. I think that players, it's not that they take bad shots because, I mean, Porter Jr. Porter Jr.'s shot wasn't the smartest of all time, a running three in transition with a trailer bearing down on him, by the way, DeAndre Ayton. Ayton almost got a, a piece of it. In fact, it looked like he he missed. It looked like he could have gotten a block if he wanted to. So it's not that it's not the smartest shot in the world, but in this situation, you can almost guarantee two points if you take it to the rack. I get that you're trying to swing the momentum with the three, but at the end of the day, it's more about, more about getting what can you guarantee. And in that case, that was taking it to the cup and getting the two points. So that was a big mistake. Now, the Suns bench was actually outstanding in this game, and that was the first time in this series and the first time all playoffs that the Suns have been able to say this. They won the bench battle as far as points. 40 to 11. 
Landry Shamit led that effort. He made five threes and he made four in the fourth quarter. I mean, between what Booker and Durant were doing, obviously the Suns were in good hands. But whenever they got double teamed, they just swung it over to Shamit in the corner, and he was shooting them all from pretty much the same place. And he made pretty much all of them. And that was the, that was another huge reason as to why Denver couldn't come back. So m- more power to Shamit. I mean, he was awesome. What Monty Williams has done is he's finally realized that the rotation that he was playing was giving basically no support to Durant and Booker. So now he's playing Terrence Ross, TJ Warren, and Landry Shaman, who objectively might be worse players than Torrey Craig and Josh Okogie. I still don't know if I would go that far, but you could make the argument. But what they do have is they do have the ability to space the floor because they're all more consistent shooters. And so when Devin Booker has it going and the Nuggets are coming with the double team, which they were throughout the entire fourth quarter, he's able to swing it to somebody who is going to take the three-point shot. And even if he misses, we see we saw Jokic was having to be the one to scramble out to the corner to contest on him. That was opening up offensive rebounds for Ayton and Landell and whoever else was mixing it up on the inside. And then, of course, if the shot goes in, That's three points, and that's huge, huge for what the Suns were trying to do. Now, the Nuggets, their starters did not play bad at all. I know it was kind of the Jokic and Murray show, but four out of their five starters had positive plus minuses. The three players who came off the bench for them, minus 11, minus 11, minus 17. Feels like we've come a long way saying that the Suns won the bench battle, and them winning the bench battle was the reason that they won the game, but hey, that's kind of what happened here. Well, shouldn't say it's the reason they won the game. You know, Booker and Durant both going for 36 apiece. That definitely helps. One situation that we do got to monitor moving forward. You know I love talking about this in every topic. One situation to monitor. The situation to monitor for this series is Jock Landell versus DeAndre Ayton. DeAndre Ayton looks terrible. He, he can't get the fire going. Monty Williams can't get him started. Uh, he, he just doesn't seem like he wants to compete. He doesn't look good at all. In the last two games, Ayton has played 53 minutes. He has 12 points and 17 rebounds. In those same last two games, Jock Landell has played 43 minutes. He has 14 points and 14 rebounds. So to break it down, in 10 fewer minutes, Landell has two more points and three more rebounds. And by my eye test, Landell's given Jokic a lot better of a defensive effort. He's making it a lot tougher on him to score. Now, when someone scores 53, they're going to get it done against whoever. But even the game before, it definitely seemed like they were more effective with Landell in there. And that's why he was in so late in the fourth quarter because Monty Williams just didn't want to get DeAndre Ayton back out there. You guys know I'm not a fan of DeAndre Ayton. I think if you're trying to compete for a championship, you can't have him on your team because his low motor and the fact that you rely on scoring and productivity from his position, it's a lethal combination. And I mean that in a bad way. It's the lethalness, the lethality dealt towards your team. The Nuggets are favored by five and a half in game five. I'm still on the Nuggets, guys. I took the Suns in game one. I've taken the Nuggets in every game since, and I know that's only paid off one time, but the Nuggets are the better team top to bottom. I know Booker has been doing this all playoffs long. I know. But it doesn't change the fact that it's unsustainable. You cannot count on him to do it. If he does it, I will hold my hands up and say this is the best playoff run that any player has ever had. But it's not a safe bet to count on that to happen. So I'm going to go with the Nuggets. Is minus five and a half a little bit of a big line considering how close the games have been? Sure. If you want to take it down to three and a half, even four and a half, go for it. But I'm going to be on the Nuggets spread. The other game that we got to talk about that just happened the day that I'm recording this is, which is Monday, Monday morning. The Philadelphia 76ers beat the Boston Celtics to tie the series at two games apiece. Now, this game went to overtime. And it was just strange. The Sixers had a stranglehold on this game. The the Celtics just couldn't get close. Jason Tatum was absolutely dreadful in the first half. Then they come roaring back in the second half. 
They go to overtime. Tatum, by the way, picks his play up significantly. He finished with 24 points, 18 rebounds, 6 assists. And I will give him credit for the 18 rebounds because he was trying on the glass even in the first half when he was struggling. But we go to overtime. The Celtics have control of the game. It looks like the, the, the bugaboos that the Celtics are for the Philadelphia 76ers came out. And Harden not being clutch historically, Embiid not being clutch historically, it looked like it was all playing out in front of our eyes. But then the Sixers, they come roaring back, and James Harden makes his second game-winning three of this series. Uh, he was great. He finished with 42 points, nine assists, eight rebounds, shot well over 50%. I think he was over 60% from the field, actually. One of the best games that he's played in his entire playoff career. Joel Embiid, 34 points, not the most efficient from shooting the ball, but he got to the free throw line at will. 13 rebounds, looked like the MVP, played 46 minutes. And considering he was just out for a couple of weeks with a knee problem, Really impressive to see. I do hope he's still able to play in the next game in the rest of the series because obviously that's a lot of wear and tear on somebody who was just injured. But he looked okay leaving the game, so we're going to see what happens moving forward. But my God, we have to talk about Joe Missoula. We have to have a discussion about Joe Missoula. Look, I know he's a rookie head coach, and I'm not saying that he's going to be a failure forever, but he has been horrible frequently throughout the season and these playoffs. Let's look at the last three possessions of the game in overtime. Third from the last possession. He wants to get Malcolm Brogdon into the game for Marcus Smart to be on offense. It's an offense-defense substitution. He doesn't get him to the scorer's table in time, so Brogdon has to go back, sit back down on the bench, and Smart stays in the game. And the second-to-last possession, the final defensive possession. You're coming out of a timeout. You have the personnel on the floor that you want, and you're in the structure that you want. You start with Marcus Smart on Joel Embiid. I know Marcus Smart's the defensive player of the year. Joel Embiid is the MVP. He's almost a foot taller, probably 100 pounds heavier, and he has it cooking. And you get Marcus Smart on him. I just don't get it. But guess what? It doesn't even matter because Smart gets switched off of him and Tatum gets put on Embiid. Now, sure, maybe that's a little bit better of a matchup, but you're coming out of this timeout you can probably guess that there's going to be some sort of misdirection, some off-ball screens to get a mismatch onto Embiid. I don't understand why you don't have it so that if anyone's switching, it's Al Horford. Or maybe you go double big. You get Robert Williams and Horford in there so that you always have a big man ready to be attached to Embiid. But whatever, you don't do that. You have Tatum on them. But then, as the play develops, you're up two points. You're up two points with less than 30 seconds to go. And as Embiid starts to go to his dance on the post, you come with a double team with Jalen Brown off of James Harden at the, in the short corner. You're up two. You leave James Harden open for three. So you're giving him the chance to beat you. James Harden has already scored 39 points. He's already made five of his eight threes, and he shot 40% from three in the regular season. That's the guy that you double off of. You can say it's a mental lapse by Jalen Brown, sure, but it's also a, a coaching failure by Joe Mazzulla. Either A, he didn't tell his team, he didn't get it into their heads, we are not doubling off of the three-point line, or B, he didn't, he didn't adjust his game plan at all because the, the Celtics had been doubling Embiid throughout the fourth quarter in overtime, and, they, and they, he just didn't call it off. He left that double team in place as a standing order. And guess what happens? The ball makes its way to James Harden, and he sinks the three to uh, go on to win the game. We didn't know it was the game-winning shot at the time because, no, guess what? The Celtics still have 19 seconds left. And as this is happening, 
Doris Burke, who was doing the call for the game, has just finished telling the audience that Joe Mazzulla said in an interview he loves having two timeouts at the end of games so that he can get his team out of trouble and also call up the final play. But he doesn't take a timeout. No. He wants his team to get the ball down the court. And again, let's, revis let's revisit this. He wanted Malcolm Brogdon in on the third to last possession for offensive reasons. You have two timeouts. Malcolm Brogdon is still on the bench and you're on offense. But now all of a sudden you're okay with Marcus Smart being in the game. It's just confusing. It's a lack of continuity. But let's go ahead. So they inbound the ball. They take it across the court. They take their sweet old time getting into their action. And finally, they get the play going that they want. And look, it's already taken a fair amount of time. Did Missoula have the opportunity to call a timeout here? Sure. Did he? No. Finally, the play develops. We, we can see pretty much nothing's happening. The ball ends up in Marcus Smart's hands, and he doesn't get the shot off before the final buzzer. Now, he ended up making the three, which I guess, you know, props. I, I, I don't know. Is that a moral victory? I don't really know. But the shot doesn't go up before the horn sounds. So, Missoula. It just it's it makes no sense. You didn't want smart in there to begin with, but now you're okay with it for the final possession. You don't call the timeout to get your team into a set play. You just want them to figure it out on the fly. You don't call a timeout when you see that no nothing's happening, and then you don't call a timeout when it's late in the game and you still haven't gotten a shot up. I just don't get it. It's terrible coaching. And look, he is a very young coach. He was never supposed to be the head coach of this team. We know about the whole Adoka situation, so. Is it, you know what? It's not unfair to criticize him for this. This is the best team in the NBA. Well, championship favorites. How about that? This is the championship favorites. Probably what most people would consider the best team left in the playoffs. You've had well over a year together. You just can't make these mistakes. And the Celtics were really bad down the stretch too, the players. Let's not, let's not take any of that off of them. But that was just very bad from Coach Missoula. Celtics are still favored by seven in game five. I was a Celtics money line better, so it ripped my heart out to see that coaching malpractice on the sidelines. Am I going to lay the full seven back in Boston? You bet your ass I am. I am. I'm taking the Celtics. I would look at an alternate line of 15 plus. The Celtics are way up. They're way down. They're way up. They're way down. Now, they weren't necessarily way down last game, but they disappointed you greatly. So I think they're going to overachieve greatly. We're going to go back to Philadelphia. By the way, Celtics have had success in Boston historically. I know they lost game one. James Harden has been the best player in the NBA and then the worst starter in the NBA, the worst starter in the NBA, and then the best player in the NBA so far in this series. He's going to come back down to the middle. He might even go back to the bottom. It's James Harden. You never really know. You can't count on him to be consistent. The only thing he's consistent with is his inconsistency. So I'm going to go with the Celtics minus seven, but I don't feel great about it, to be completely honest. Let's talk about these next series, and I might be releasing episodes on these later in the day today because these games are happening the day that I'm putting this out, so I don't want to spend a ton of time on them. But the first one we've got is the Los Angeles Lakers versus the Golden State Warriors. The Lakers are up 2-1 to one in this series. Let's just look back at Game 3. Obviously, the Lakers won by 30. They won 127-97, to 97, but they shot and made more threes than the Warriors. They shot and made more free throws than the Warriors. They committed less fouls. They turned the ball over less. They shot a better percentage from three. They shot a better percentage from the field. They shot a better percentage from the free throw line. They won the rebounding battle. I mean, everything, every part of the game came up Los Angeles. And it was so strange because the Warriors got off to a good start. 
they were winning at the end of the first quarter and they were up by 11 with over four minutes into the second into the second quarter. And the Lakers, D'Angelo Russell was absolutely on fire. But other than him, nobody really looked interested in playing. And then the Warriors, for whatever reason, I, I don't even want to say took their foot off the gas because that doesn't do it justice. It looked like their engine stalled out. They needed AAA to come pick them up off the side of the road. All of the principles and the standards that they held themselves to, they just went by the wayside. I, I They just stopped pushing the ball in transition. They, they stopped creating mismatches off the ball with their pins downs and their and their screens. Their, their defense, they, they couldn't stay attached to anybody. They were they committed two technical fouls in the second quarter. They were making a bunch of turnovers. They looked like they had no energy. I I mean I mean I've I've been on the Lakers to win this series, and I was on the Lakers to win this game. I actually bet an alternate line in this one of minus nine and a half, and obviously that ended up cashing. But I didn't expect that. I thought for sure the game was over too because I didn't like what the Lakers had done at the start. They switched Jared Vanderbilt on the Draymond Green, which I I. I mean, Draymond is not an offensive threat. I get I get that he's the facilitator of the offense, so maybe you want somebody right in his grill to make it tough for him to set things up, sure. But Austin Reeves, you know, I love Austin Reeves. I think he tries. I think he's one of the better role players in the NBA. But he he, he can't stay attached to Steph Curry. He just can't. And then the rotations, there, there's some questions there. Lonnie Walker gets put back in there, and he's part of a three-guard lineup. And I know that I've been campaigning for three-guard lineups earlier in the series, but Lonnie Walker, again, you're bringing him off the bench, and he hasn't played in how long? He hasn't been a part of the rotation for months. Just seemed like a strange spot to sort of do it all in. But it worked out. It absolutely worked out. So I got to hold my hands up. Darvin Ham got it right. I absolutely got it wrong. He's the coach of the Lakers for a reason, you know, and I'm I'm sitting at home recording to my camera for a reason. Um, no, but it was a very, very impressive game from the Lakers. LeBron James became the first player in NBA history to have 21 points, eight rebounds, eight assists, no fouls and no turnovers in a playoff game. And this was after he started for the first time in his 275-game playoff career without taking a shot in the first quarter. I was in a group chat with some guys talking about the game, and they were saying, you know, this is classic LeBron. He's being unaggressive, and this is why he'll never be Jordan because he doesn't impact the games when he needs to. Yeah, look, we know how that turned out. Not even worth the time responding to. Anthony Davis, he also had 20 – well, he had 25 points, 13 rebounds, I believe. Really good in this game. Another stellar defensive performance. He's going to have to be good in game four if they want to take a 3-1 lead. And if they do take a 3-1 lead, the series is effectively over. 95% of teams that go up 3-1 go on to win the series. There have only been 13 comebacks from 3-1 down in NBA history, in NBA playoff history, obviously, that is. Lakers, I think they're, they're, they're favored, and I think that's fair. I think they have the advantage in this game. We're going to get adjustments out of the Warriors. Steve Kerr loves to tinker with his lineup. I think Jamichael Green's going back to the bench. It worked well in game two, but he only played 11 minutes in game three, and he was one of five from the field. He was a minus 10 in that stretch. I don't think he's going to be out there much longer. Maybe he comes in off the bench, but honestly, I'd be surprised by that. Jordan Poole looks atrocious. He looks terrible. I saw Gilbert Arena say that if he was the Warriors, he would think about trading him. I've been saying that for a while, and I still agree with that. Trade him now while he still has value. And look, he will he can go to the Pistons, he can go to the Hornets and put up 20, let's say 25 points a game. And he'll have highlight plays. But he does, he does, he just doesn't fit. He doesn't fit the Warriors. 
And I don't mean that he doesn't fit their style. I mean that he doesn't fit their mentality. He's not consistent. He makes stupid plays. He's bad on defense. And he takes the ball out of Stephen Clay's hands. And you don't want that. He has not looked good in this series. He has not looked good in these playoffs. I'm not surprised. I'm not surprised that he, his role is starting to diminish. And honestly, I would not be surprised to see him play less than 20 minutes in game four tonight. One final note on this series. Both of the Lakers' wins have come in games where Jamon Green is in foul trouble. Look for them to prioritize that, getting him into foul trouble in game four. The Knicks first the Heat. This isn't the most entertaining series in the world, I've got to be honest. Part, I mean, I love defense, so I'm not saying that it's because they can't score the ball. Well, they can occasionally, but you know what I mean. It's a defensive battle. The over-under set at 207, if that gives you any indication. That's not why I'm saying it's not the most interesting series. I'm saying it's not the most interesting series because I think the Heat are just flat out better. I think we've seen it, and it's so weird that the eighth seed is en route to the Eastern Conference Finals, first of all, but they took out the number one seed, and they didn't even they almost didn't make the playoffs. Keep in mind, they lost to Atlanta at home in the play-in game. And I picked them to lose to the Bulls in the second play-in game. And that's, of course, where playoff Jimmy Butler showed up. I didn't think he was going to show up when he didn't make an appearance for the first play-in game, but he's been there ever since. And the Knicks just can't guard Jimmy Butler. They're doing their best. I mean, he only shot 9 of 21 from the field. That's not great, but he's been extremely impactful in this series despite the injury. And his teammates, they're stepping up around him. And even last game. If the Knicks aren't going to win the last game, they don't really have a chance because the Heat made seven threes. They shot 20% from three. That really should have been the Knicks' chance to capitalize on them, and they lost by 20. They lost by 20 points, and they were on the road. In Miami, which isn't a great home atmosphere, they can barely sell half their tickets, and the Knicks were better on the road this season than they were at home, so that's not an excuse. Mitchell Robinson, not been impactful at all the last two games. Julius Randle, I think there's an imposter wearing his jersey and uniform. I don't know where they would hire a paid actor that's that tall and that that's muscular because those guys don't, aren't exactly walking the street everywhere, but this is not the Julius Randle that we all know and love. This guy's shooting 35% from the field, 23% in the playoffs. He looks awful. Jalen Brunson only scored 20 points last game. He's being asked to do an awful lot for a six-foot guard going against a, heat, a physical heat defense. His first time in the playoffs really as the guy or even as a guy. He was important to the Mavericks, but the Mavericks were all Luka's team. This is the first time Jalen Brunson is playing for Jalen Brunson's reputation. And he was great in the first round, but he's not good enough to get past this heat defense and Jimmy Butler on his own. He needs guys to come with him. I think the Heat are going to go up 3-1 tonight, and then I wouldn't be surprised if this ended in six. I'll give the Knicks another game at home, but I'm going to say the Heat get this one done in six games. Guys, that's going to do it for the NBA playoffs. Like I told you, stick around, and you would get my best bets for the playoffs. Oh, real quick, speaking of bets, why don't I check the line for this Heat game and this Lakers game, actually, and let you know what I'm taking. Lakers minus three. Give me the Lakers minus three. And then the Heat, minus four and a half, I'll be on that as well. So give me both favorites covering the spread in today's games. Let's go and move on over to the NFL. And I'm super excited for this because we are playing the three-word game that I have not given a name to. So we're just going to leave it as the placeholder of the three-word game. We're going to go through the entire NFC. And I'm going to give you a three-word recap of what this team is, what this team has to offer, what their outlook is, everything that goes into it. If you stick around for next week's episode, we will go over the AFC. This time we're sticking with the NFC. Let's get it started. The Philadelphia Eagles swiftly moving forward. 
They made the trade for DeAndre Swift. That gives them the bell cow running back that they so desperately needed. Look, this team is ready-made to win a Super Bowl championship. Jalen Hurts, one of the best quarterbacks in the league. Devontae Smith, A.J. Brown, all the weapons that you can ask for. Arguably the best defense in the NFL. Consensus top three defense in the NFL. And you've got rookies and young guys that are going to be able to play and get better. Jalen Carter, N'Kobe Dean, people of that elk. Jordan Davis, potentially. He didn't have a great rookie year, but he's still a very talented player. Can make a huge impact. Eagles, got to be your championship favorite in the NFC. The Dallas Cowboys. Watch the Dakovers. I'm calling them the Dakovers, not the turnovers, because Dak Prescott threw more interceptions than any quarterback in the league last year, despite missing a quarter of the season. Now, that was an aberration because he's not been the most turnover-prone quarterback throughout his career. But if it, if he's throwing multiple picks every week, can you start to call it an aberration or a trend? I don't really know, but we're going to find out about halfway through the season how we evaluate Dak and where his place in the NFC is. He used to be one of the top three quarterbacks in the league, a consensus top 10 quarterback, or excuse me, top three quarterback in the NFC, top 10 quarterback in the league. I don't think that's the case anymore. I think there's a real case Dak isn't even a top half quarterback anymore. We're going to have to wait and see how this season plays out. The Washington Commanders, who's in command? Whose idea was it to call every team in the league to ask about their quarterback situation? Why did you call the Chiefs to ask about Patrick Mahomes? Why did you call the Bills to ask about Josh Allen? Why did you call the Bengals to ask about Joe Burrow? Why did you call Andrew Luck to come out of retirement? If he couldn't stay healthy in Indy, you think he's going to be healthy in Washington? You think he wants to come play for a team that's losing its owner and has no direction? No, absolutely not. And Riverboat Ron... Love you as a person. Can't really stand you as a coach anymore. Think you're think you're past your prime. I mean, I wish you luck. This is my team, and I really just don't like claiming them anymore. The New York Giants. Keep up, Jones. As in keeping up with the Joneses. Daniel Jones, look, I know you got your money. Four years, $40 million a year. Congratulations for you. Life-changing. I'm still not convinced you're that good of a quarterback. Sure, you had the sixth best QBR in the league last year, but you also threw 15 touchdowns in 17 games. This is a throwing league, and your job is to throw the football. I don't care how dynamic you are running fullback power. I want to see you throw touchdowns. And look, they drafted Jalen Hyatt, speedy receiver out of Tennessee. He's going to be able to come in and make some plays for you. The weapons group is getting better. Show me something. Show me this is Daniel Jones' team, not Brian Dable's team. The New York Saints. New York Saints. Goodness gracious. The New Orleans Saints. A family car. Derek Carr. You want to prove that you are an elite quarterback? This is the year to do it. You've got weapons. Michael Thomas is older and he's beat up, but he can still make plays. Chris Olave, one of the best young receivers in the league. Best rookie receivers, certainly. The defense is pretty to very good. They brought you in for a lot of money. The, the, the region, the region, I'm all over the place. The division is awful. There isn't much talent spread around the NFC. There are some great teams, but from top to bottom, the NFC is significantly worse than the AFC. Certainly, the quarterback competition is much less. You want to prove your spot in the NFL as one of the best, better, not best, one of the better quarterbacks. This is the year to do it. The Tampa Bay Buccaneers. The Bucs starts now. The Buck doesn't stop now. The Bucs starts now. Because the Buccaneers have no direction as a franchise. I mean, we've got a quarterback competition between Baker Mayfield and Kyle Trask. 
the the weapons guys they're slowly diminishing the defense is slowly disintegrating your first round draft pick you got a lineman but i don't think he's gonna be that impactful he's probably not even gonna play the entire year you've made coaching changes recently this is a team that is sort of just building for the future but it doesn't really know what it's building around so it's waiting for that to sort of fall into its lap before it really has any goals or aspirations the atlanta falcons ridding the scraps ridding as in desmond ritter look the falcons have done their best to remake their roster and it started with the draft pick of b john robinson which i got to admit i don't really love b i love b john robinson absolutely love him think he's a phenomenal player but tyler algier just set a rookie rushing record for the franchise rushed for over a thousand yards running back was not the problem you already had cordero patterson too i mean i just i just don't understand the look there Drake London, he's going to be good on offense. Kyle Pitts, we know he can also make plays. But the defense, you get Calais Campbell, you get Grady Jarrett back in there. You got A.J. Terrell, who's also a good corner. You bring in Bud Dupree, who's going to help that linebacking core. Jesse Bates from the Bengals. Jeff Okuda from the Lions. These are some impactful upgrades. Now, am I expecting much from the Falcons? No. But they are starting to get better. I think there's still several, several moves away from being truly competitive as far as the playoffs go. But... They're getting better, and that's all you can ask for as a franchise. The Carolina Panthers, just start him. Don't, get, don't, don't feed me this nonsense about Bryce Young being in a quarterback competition with Andy Dalton. Just start the kid. He was the first pick in the draft. I know he's 5'10". He might trouble, struggle to see over the line, blah, 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 blah. This is a good situation to step into. Frank Wright can help young quarterbacks. You've got DJ Chark and Adam Thielen. Those are two proven commodities. Might have lower ceilings than the other number ones and number twos in the leagues, but they have decent floors. you got Hayden Hurst at wideout, Miles Sanders at running back. This is not a terrible situation. The line gave up the fifth fewest sacks in the league last year. Just start him. He's not going to get pummeled if he gets put in on day one. So just start him. Just start him, please. The Seattle Seahawks, the legion of whom? Not the Legion of Boom, but the Legion of Whom, because they drafted Devin Witherspoon, and they're going to partner him with Tariq Wolin. This is all of a sudden a strong secondary. It looks good, and this is an exciting offense, too. You've got Jackson Smith and Jigba. He's going to be at wide out along with Tyler Lockett and DK Metcalf. Metcalf excuse me. Geno Smith was willing to air the ball out pretty frequently last year. You've got some running backs in there that can make some noise. This is an exciting team. Now, the 49ers still have to be favored in that division, but can the Seahawks make it to the playoffs? 100%. And I'm going to pick them to do just that. Speaking of the 49ers, the San Francisco 49ers, digging your hair grave. They signed Jason Hairgrave, the top free agent during the offseason, defensive lineman, adding him to the best defensive line in the league. It's just unfair what the 49ers are doing. Talk about reloading not rebuilding i mean my goodness they got playmakers at literally every possession position and they have multiple of them if they figure out this quarterback situation they have a chance to go undefeated i don't think it's going to happen i still think they're going to lose probably at least four games but as far as talent goes they could do it if they figure out the quarterback situation the los angeles rams F'd them picks. F them picks. I know that was the motto of the year. They made the run to the Super Bowl, but coming back to bite them, they really don't have anywhere to go. Matthew Stafford, is he even going to be able to play? Is he going to be forced into an injury-induced retirement? Cooper Cup's coming off an injury. Without those two, we saw what the team looked like last year. Heads up, it was awful. Jalen Ramsey's gone. 
Von Miller's gone. Aaron Donald, he's back. He's not going to retire, but he definitely wasn't impactful as he has been in years past last year. Looks like he's almost coasting into retirement. Bobby Wagner, also gone, back with the Seahawks. Again, the Legion of Whom. It's not looking great in Los Angeles. Now, I get you had to win a Super Bowl if you're willing to take the risk and trade all those picks, and you did. So it paid off. But the next few years are going to be ugly. That is for sure. The Arizona Cardinals, no present comment. Nobody should expect a thing from the Cardinals this year, aside from finishing with the worst record in the NFL. I know they drafted a lineman, gave Kyler Murray some help. It's a smart thing to do. But the team just sucks, top to bottom. DeAndre Hopkins might not play. I mean, the defense is gutted. Buda Baker wants out. The offense isn't good. There's nothing to look forward to right now. Now, next year, the two worst teams in the NFL this year are probably going to be the Arizona Cardinals and the Houston Texans. Guess what? The Cardinals have their pick next year, and they have the Texans pick next year. So just how the Texans pick 2-3 in this draft, Cardinals have a pretty good chance to pick 1-2 in the next draft. That's what they've got to be looking to, and that's what the fans got to be looking to, because if you're looking for success in the present, it's going to be a pretty depressing season. The Minnesota Vikings, no running plays. Just throw the ball. Just throw the ball. Kevin, o Kevin O'Connell has done a great job scheming people open. You've got Justin Jefferson up there. Jordan Addison, a former Bolitnikoff winner, is coming in as a first-round draft pick. That is going to be a deadly one-two combination on the outside. Those guys can run any route in the tree. And then Dalvin Cook, you might not bring him back. Just throw the ball. No running plays. Maybe on the goal line, you can run quarterback sneaks. That's it. I want to see a 10,000-yard passing season from Kirk Cousins. The Chicago Bears got it right. Drafted Darnell Wright as a right tackle. Gave Justin Fields some protection. Fields tied with Russell Wilson for the most sacks taken by a quarterback in the league last year. You have playmakers on the outside. DJ Moore, Trace Claypool, Darnell Mooney. The defense is going to be better because you brought in Tremaine Edmonds, arguably the best linebacker in the league, certainly one of them. It was a smart decision to get right. You, now, maybe you wanted Skaronsky, or maybe you wanted someone else. Maybe, maybe, you wanted, uh, maybe you wanted Paris Johnson. But you ended up with Darnell Wright. He's a big dude. He actually had success blocking Will Anderson Jr. when he was at Tennessee. So I think it was a smart decision for them, and we're going to see what happens with those guys. I'm high on the Bears this season. I really am. The Detroit Lions. Look, it's the Motor City, so why don't we pump the brakes, please? I am excited by what the Lions are doing. I am. I love a lot of their additions. I wasn't so sure about trading DeAndre Swift, but once you got Jameer Gibbs and then you already got D D uh, D David Montgomery, excuse me, makes sense. I love the pickup of Brian Branch in the second round. That was a first-round talent that could have gone at safety. Did they reach for Gibbs? Did they reach for Jack Campbell? Sure. But again, they've made some smart additions. Jared Goff coming off one of the best seasons of his career and one in which he looked like a top seven, top 10 quarterback. But you're depending on him to do that again. You're also depending on Dan Campbell, who as much as, as he has created this exciting culture, still hasn't proven that he's a winning coach. So to put them, I believe they're seventh in Super Bowl odds, pump the brakes a little. Pump the brakes. They're a top half team, but let's just see what happens this year. And then finally, the Green Bay Packers. Where's the love? Jordan Love, he looked good when he played in that game last year, but we still don't really know what's going to come. Now the Packers did draft two tight ends. Their wide receiver situation, they've got some young guys that can make plays. The defense is going to be okay, but where's the love? Where is the love? Where's Jordan Love in his progression? 
Where's Jordan Love at his level of ability? We have to wait and see before we know what these Packers truly are. Is it on the board that the Packers have a better year than the Jets? It's on the board. Is it likely? Probably not. But could it happen? We're going to have to wait and see, and we're going to find out. And we're going to find out pretty soon because the NFL season, even though it's a few months away, with everything that we've got going on in sports, it's not going to take too long to get here. Guys, that was the episode. That was episode number 15 of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Thank you all so much for tuning in. Again, I post weekly full-length podcasts, and then throughout the week, I'm dropping clips, and I'm also dropping reactions to the latest developments in sports, usually after big playoff games. So make sure that you stay tuned for that. Comment, subscribe, like the video. Helps me out a tremendous amount. Thank you all so much for tuning in, and I will see you all next time on the next episode of The Sitch with Grant Mitchell. Have a great day.